0: 1 Peter 1 and 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers, pilgrims, sojourners, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, I'd like to speak to you on this subject, Messages to the Dispersed Church. Please be seated and let's dig into the book of 1 Peter. This past Sunday, January 30th, I preached on the dispersed church. And as I prepared and studied, I noticed that 1 Peter and James were addressed, both these books, to the dispersed church, both Jews and Gentiles. It was written by this book, First and 2 Peter, written by the Apostle Peter, and his apostleship is unquestioned. There are times that Paul defends his apostleship. But Peter does not need to do that because his apostleship is confirmed. Now, Paul was just as much an apostle. In the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul tells us that in the same way that he, Paul, was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, that the apostle Peter was called to be an apostle to the Jews or to the circumcision, Galatians Chapter 2, verses, verses 7 and 8. And then, as I mentioned, the, the book of 1 Peter is addressed to strangers scattered. And then he lists some specific areas, Pontius Galatian. I named them in our text. Now, some commentaries say that the book of First Peter is addressed mostly to Jewish Christians scattered abroad because, after all, he's the apostle to the circumcision. Or the Jews. Other commentaries feel like this is more aimed toward Gentile converts to Christianity. But then there are those like myself who would say this has a broader audience. The Christians scattered all over the world wherever they might be. And it has an audience both Jewish and Gentile. There are several Old Testament quotations in the book of 1 Peter. So you would have to assume that he was writing to an audience that was somewhat or maybe a whole lot educated in the Old Testament. They understood the Bible, which for them that was the canon of the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't yet written and released about 64 A.D. perhaps when this book was written, A.D. 64. So this dispersion uh, written to all of these Christians everywhere. Now we know that the word dispersion, if you were here Sunday, refers to... Jews who were exiled by force or by choice throughout the centuries. All the way back to the Assyrian, the Babylonian captivity and then throughout the ages. And as I preached on Sunday, these dispersed Jews, many of them, had returned to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. They obeyed Acts 2.38, then they went back home. So this was an instant... Spreading of the gospel. Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. On Sunday I preached about the dispersion that was forced by the persecution that followed the death of Stephen, mainly you know, fueled by Saul of Tarshish who became the great apostle Paul. So in Acts 8 there is a scattering of Christians who were in Jerusalem. But these people were there on the day of Pentecost went back to their homeland, no doubt spread the gospel. Now this is, you know, several decades later, a couple, you know, some time later, I don't want to say an exact time without going back and making sure what I'm saying. But they're living all over the world. But specifically, uh, the Apostle Peter addresses those who are living in several countries he names, which would be Asia Minor or the region of the modern day country of Turkey. So that's kind of, who the Apostle Peter is writing to. Christian people, Jews and Gentiles, scattered all over the world, but primarily in the area of Asia Minor. James will address his book to the dispersion, or the 12 tribes scattered abroad, mostly, would think, a Jewish audience by what he said. I want to give you a little overview. We're going to dig into the book of First Peter. I'm not thinking that I will finish tonight, but I have a stopping place in mind. Um, I mentioned that, you know, it's written by the Apostle Peter and his apostleship is unquestioned. He gives a greeting in the first two verses, and then there's a song of praise in verses 3 to 12. He talks about their new family identity, that they are now part of the kingdom of God. And in the book of 1 Peter that I'll dig into a little more, he speaks about the importance of suffering as a witness of Jesus Christ. And then he talks about suffering as part of our future hope, and he closes the book. As I was digging through various uh, studies of the book of 1 Peter, I-, I saw a way of kind of slicing this book and breaking it down that I thought made a lot of sense. But first of all, that suffering proves salvation. When we are saved... are called to suffer, Jesus told us this and because we are our suffering proves that we are really part of Jesus Christ that we should be holy, we should love one another and we should desire the word of God, we're the holy people of God, the separated people of God and because of that we should be excellent in our conduct toward people in authority, toward our spouses you will talk about that in chapter 3 and toward everyone And then the Apostle Peter tells us that Jesus Christ was an example of suffering, that we should follow in his steps. And because Jesus suffered before us, then we should live for the will of God in our lives, even though it may involve suffering, and we should demonstrate our spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. And he tells us also that suffering tests us. So we should have elders in the church to help guard the flock, People that may be vulnerable through seasons of suffering. That we should humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Because suffering is a humbling experience. And then we should stand firm. After you've suffered a while. You will be established, strengthened and settled. So in that background. I want to look at some of the messages to the dispersed church. That are found in the book of First Peter. Now this theme, one of the overarching themes in in verse 1, that they're pilgrims, they're the people of God but they're scattered abroad. 1 Peter 1 and 1, we've already read this Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers sojourners, pilgrims all of those would be similar words um, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia and as I mentioned this is Asia Minor, modern day Turkey and then in verse 2 He defines who they are. He said, you who are scattered everywhere in the world. Now, think about this. They're not in Jerusalem where there are a lot of believers. They may be scattered in an area where there's just a family or two. Or maybe it's just one family that are scattered somewhere there in Asia Minor. And they're living for God the best they can. But they're not surrounded. They're not in a big church. They're not in a district, you know, the United Pentecostal Church has lots of districts. And by the way, for the last nine years, on this particular Wednesday night, I've been in a district board meeting. Well, I'm happy. I'm glad to serve. I'm glad to be in church tonight at Atlanta West. So, anyway, the Georgia district, <laughs> another district. Some are large, some are small, and I've had the privilege of traveling here and there in some very, very small districts with few churches at all where there are not very many apostolics around. Many of our young people go to schools, and they're the only apostolic kid there. When I grew up in my elementary school, you know, until my siblings came along, I was the only Pentecostal. They didn't even know how to say the word Pentecostal. pen a what you know? And so I understand maybe how some of these believers felt that they were isolated by distance, They were surrounded by unbelievers. And he tells them in the beginning of this book that they are the elect. That they are somebody in God. He tells them according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he greets them grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So I want to break a few of these things down and I'll go through some verses real specifically and then others I'll just kind of cover in a general way. And we're not trying to read the entire book tonight, in case you're wondering. But it might be a good idea. You can do that between now and next Wednesday night. Uh, but he says that they are elect. Now this does not mean that God uh, foreordained them. This is not Calvinism. But when they got saved, when they received the word of God they became part of God's chosen people. This is important as we read through this book in, in 1 Peter 2 and 9. So tonight I'm kind of excerpting verses that are themes throughout the book. 1 Peter 2 and 9. But you are a chosen generation. Remember elect in verse, that first verse? You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation a peculiar people or God's special people, that you should show forth the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. So tonight I'm not really focusing on the last part of this verse where He tells them how important it is for them to be that light in the dark cultures in which they live. But He wants them to know that God has made them part of His family that they've been brought into the body of Christ, that even though they may feel like they are all alone, that they are part of the family of God all over the world. So this is a pretty big deal for them. In times of suffering, these spiritual transients, these pilgrims and strangers, they need to be reminded that they were called of God, chosen of God, that they mattered. And I want to just stop right there long enough to say that while you may not be thrown in prison tomorrow, no one may beat you tomorrow for the name of Jesus Christ. Hopefully not, but it could happen. But even in what we would call a normal world, you can feel all alone, the only person in your school, college classroom, on the job or neighborhood who is living for God. I want to remind you that even though God may have you dispersed throughout the world, He has you there on purpose. And wherever you are, He is there with you. You are His chosen people that God loves you and you matter to Him. When these dispersed Christians were marginalized by the world, they needed to know that they were God's special people, that peculiar people. And then He tells them in verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, and He tells them how this happened. It was through sanctification of the Spirit and obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ unto you. And he tells them, peace be multiplied. So he encourages them by saying, look, your salvation was more than just a choice you made. You didn't just accept Christ as your Savior. Christ came in you. He changed you. He regenerated you. He filled you with the power of His Spirit. And when he did, you were sanctified or made holy by the Spirit of God. So here you are, living who knows where, but you're the elect of God. You are filled with the Spirit of God. You are God's chosen people, and you have the Holy Ghost living inside of you that empowers you. Amen. So they were sanctified. Now, I envisioned, you know, I'm just kind of imagining... Someone who was there on the day of Pentecost, a devout man from out of every nation under heaven, right? They came there, they went back home, and now they're somewhere else, but they were made pure by the blood of Jesus Christ and holy. And now they have this reinforcing message from the great apostle Peter who preached the message that they obeyed on the day of Pentecost. And I think they must need this message because of the circumstances in which they are living. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a living or lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, Reserved in heaven for you. And believe me, every word and phrase of that verse has tremendous meaning. Who were kept. He wants them to know. You are kept by the power of God. Through faith unto salvation. Ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen. So we, just like them. We were begotten by the Spirit but we were begotten with an end in mind. He said we were begotten to a living hope, not a dead experience that just happened and went away, but just like a child that is born, that child is born with an end in mind, with maturity and adulthood and meaning to that person's life. And the apostle Peter wants him to know that when God saved you, It wasn't just so you would be in a protracted infancy, it was so you would grow, he tells them the desire, the sincere milk of the word later, that they may grow thereby. He said, but there's this living hope that Jesus Christ gave you, that you would grow and God would give you a great purpose, this living hope. And this living hope, he said, is anchored in the empty tomb, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the same Jesus that was raised from the dead has raised you from the death of your old sins and He's given you this living hope. Amen. And then He tells them, verse 4, I'm reading this verse again. Now, this living hope is to an inheritance. And then He describes what this inheritance is. It is incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, and it is reserved in heaven for you. Now this inheritance is described by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, other places in the Bible, but Romans 8, 17. He tells them, if you are children, then you are heirs. You are heirs of God, and you are joint heirs or co-heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Now while the Apostle Paul talks about suffering here and there, The Apostle Peter makes it a major theme of 1 Peter. So we're going back to Paul who writes on this same subject. And then Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So the Apostle Peter tells them that they have received this inheritance. Now I don't know if you have a rich relative. I don't. But if you do, pay tithes. No. If you have a really, really rich relative and they left you millions of dollars, you have this inheritance. But a lot of things can happen to that inheritance, right? He says you have an inheritance, but then he describes it with three adjectives. He said, Your inheritance is incorruptible, it doesn't depreciate, it is permanent. Nothing can happen to it. Nothing can diminish it. Your inheritance of eternal life is, first of all, it is incorruptible. Second, he said, it is undefiled. It is a morally pure inheritance that God has for you. And then he said that it does not fade away. It fadeth not away. That there is nothing that will happen to this inheritance And he gives this allusion or a word picture to a flower that would fade away, that would wilt and wither and be gone. He said "But your inheritance, while you're out here living for God in a hostile environment, God has given you an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and it fadeth not away. Amen. So you can bank on what God has given you to keep you all through your life unto eternal life. And then he finishes it by saying that this inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. It literally means that your inheritance is guarded. Wow. It's protected. No one can rob it away from you. Do you remember what Jesus said, Matthew 6 and 20 in the Sermon on the Mount? But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and thieves do not break through and steal. What he was saying is you can bank on retirement here, and you should. You should lay up something and for your children's children. There's a lot of scripture about planning for old age and retirement and consider the ant and all of those things. But ultimately, we're not laying up for the last 20 years of our life What we're really laying up for more than anything is for what happens after death and that is our eternal reward. Amen. And Jesus wanted you to know and Peter wanted you to know that it is kept. It is reserved and that nothing can take that away from you. The picture is of a fortress reserved in heaven for you. Protected, guarded in heaven and The idea is that they are inside of this fortress. And on the outside of this fortress, there are forces that are trying to assault assault these Christians. But on the perimeter of this fortress is the overwhelming force of the power of God. He said it is guarded. It is reserved in heaven for you. Now, I don't know what kind of week you're having but these people who were reading this epistle in Asia Minor, they needed to hear that what God had given them was going to keep them, that it was not going to go away, that nothing could destroy them. Amen. It was their faith and God's protection that kept that promise alive in their life. There was a verse that I wanted to just say now, at Jude 24, 1 and 24, only one chapter in Jude. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, Jude wrote to say to his, his readers that what you have inside of you will keep you, not just today or tomorrow. And he that is begun... A good work in you, Paul would write, will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. What God has started in you, He will finish in you. He's going to keep you. Amen. You are kept by the power of God. Now because the Bible does not teach the doctrine of unconditional eternal security, sometimes fundamentalists, Pentecostals, think that they're living with one foot on a banana peel and the other foot in hell that you're just right on the verge of being lost and, and the devil's going to get you tomorrow but i can tell you that from god's pers- from god's perspective He's got you in the palm of his hand. He's craving you. Amen. You are secure from God's perspective. And if you fall, get up again. If you sin, repent. If you fail, don't quit. Amen. Peter wants him to know that you've got an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, that is reserved in heaven for you. Let's just applaud the Lord because that's some powerful scripture. Amen. Amen. And then he tells them that it is ready to be revealed at the last time. Not now, it is ready to be revealed. At the last time. Now, this is a key to understanding our walk with God. Recently in talking about being transformed and renewed, I referred to Colossians chapter 2, that we are to set our affection on things above, you know, the calibrate, renew thing. Set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. But Paul said, for you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. So I know I taught on this, but I want to remind you of that teaching from Paul in the letter from the Apostle Peter to the sojourners all over the world. He said, it is ready, your salvation is ready to be revealed at the last time. But don't think that your neighbors in Pontius throughout all of Asia Minor know how awesome you really are or how blessed you really are. Because they think you might be a little weird by the way you live. And Paul said your life is hid with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then we too shall appear with Him in glory. But right now, He is not revealed to the world. And we are not revealed to the world. When He's revealed as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, then we will be revealed as a true people of God. And the Apostle Peter has the same idea in mind, that right now your salvation has all of these qualities to it, but it is ready to be revealed at the last time. So hang in there, because it is not yet. Amen. Now I'll come back to 1 Peter 1 and 6 in just a little while. But I want to address this theme in 1 Peter and elsewhere in the Bible that Christians are pilgrims and strangers on the earth. We're sojourners. Now, if you are within 20 years of my age, either side, you probably grew up singing, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. If you're nodding, you're older than you think. (laughs) My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. I didn't really think I would remember the whole part of that, right? So we're pilgrims and strangers and throughout the history of Christianity all the way back to the days of the Apostle Peter Christians needed to remind themselves that this is not your home, that your citizenship is in heaven. No wonder you really feel like a misfit in many ways because the the values, the social mores of our world are not the values of the people of God. So that's just the way it is. And he tells them, chapter 1, verse 1 again, I just want to capture these two words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers, the sojourners, the pilgrims, scattered throughout these areas, Pontius, Galatia, etc. Like Abraham, we are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Like the people of faith throughout all times, all the way, now Abraham is an Old Testament patriarch, right? He's the father of the faithful and a friend of God, by the way. First Hebrews, though, eleven thirteen. Tells us about these Old Testament people of faith. And, and I didn't put these verses on the screen. But now I wish I had. Hebrews 11.13. These all died in faith. Not having received the promise. The promise of the Holy Ghost. But having seen this promise afar of off. And were persuaded of them. Thank you very much. Look at that magic back there. And embraced them. And And confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And the Bible said that Abraham dwelt in tents, right? With, Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. They were nomads. They were people who were on the move. That was Abraham. He went out not knowing where he went, the Bible said. All of these lessons are lessons for us who live in this world, who walk by faith and not by sight, who are headed somewhere, we know where, but on the way from here to there, you don't ever feel exactly like you're home, because you're not home yet. For they that say such things, declare plainly that they seek a country, verse 14, verse 15 now, and truly if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, for them it would be maybe Ur of the Chaldees, they might have had opportunity to have return. Now, this is not my Bible study, but if you live life and you're constantly looking into the rearview mirror, if you're Lot's wife, who's constantly looking back, if you look back, you will go back. These people were not mindful of of the country they came out of. They had a forward look. They had a look of faith for the future, okay? They would have had an opportunity of return if they would have kept looking back, verse 16. But now they desire a better country that is and heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city and that city whose builder and maker is God is the new Jerusalem holy city coming down from God out of heaven adorned as a bride prepared for her husband amen that's our goal that's where we're headed amen and the Apostle Peter wants these Christians to know that you are like the people of faith throughout the ages That you are just passing through. And that it is important that you don't look back or you'll go back. It is important that you live by faith. It is important that you stay encouraged when everyone around you may think that you're odd and you're a misfit because you don't belong in this culture of a fallen, sinful world that is away from God because you don't. Amen. They are the strangers scattered abroad. Now the Jews had used the term dispersion to refer to their scattered communities outside of Palestine ever since the exile, as I mentioned earlier, of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And I mentioned this on Sunday, and so there's always, when you're going back this far, some difference of opinion, right? I mentioned that there might have been a half a million Jews in Palestine. There could have been as many as a million. But four million living outside of Palestine. I think on Sunday I said from three to seven million people. But but nonetheless, this audience, the audience of James, the audience of people who lived outside of Jerusalem, Judea, were millions of Jewish people, millions of Christian people that lived all over the world. This was a large audience that the Apostle Peter was writing to, scattered all over the Roman Empire, but in their hearts, they saw Jerusalem as that unifying factor. But the Apostle Peter wants them to know, that you're not just a sojourner from Jerusalem, but there's another place that you belong to. And that homesickness in your heart, is not for Judea, it is not for Jerusalem, but it is for heaven. Amen. So in this book, he wants them to understand that you're a stranger. You're scattered abroad, but you're not really a sojourner who's been kicked out of or intentionally moved away from Jerusalem. You're a person who really belongs in heaven. Amen. And that's what God has promised you. You have this inheritance. That is incorruptible, undefiled. It fades not away. It is reserved. It is guarded in heaven for you. And that's where you really belong. So they're dispersed really from this heavenly city. And it's kind of a a metaphor for where they really belong and where they really are. Pretty interesting application. And he tells them that they are to... And this is in 1 Peter 2.11... Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lust that war against your soul. So we're in chapter 1, but in chapter 2 he maintains this theme. He reminds them, okay guys, okay ladies, remember you're a pilgrim, you're a stranger, and because you do not belong in this world and your citizenship is in heaven, now you need to live like a citizen of that world and not of this world. Because your citizenship is in heaven and you're a pilgrim on this earth then you need to walk away from temptation and fleshly lust because they're warring against your soul. Paul said in Philippians 3 and 20 that your citizenship is in heaven and we're looking for the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. So here here is what I feel like is a tension to manage, okay? Okay. It's one of our staff sayings that we learned elsewhere that, that you live here, right? We're living in time, but we're living for eternity. There's an old song, I mentioned it before and really didn't plan to talk about this song. So lately, all I've got is leaving on my mind. That's okay. I don't like the verses that say you're letting your house fall down around you. You know, the shutters and the windows and you're just, you know, really terrible example in your neighborhood and at work and, and you know, you're just waiting for Jesus to get you out of here so you're not paying your bills and yeah, <laughs> because you're just waiting for the rapture, right? So here is this tension that they are God's chosen people they're called out of darkness into marvelous light, right? They're pilgrims and strangers. They're, they're living in time, but for eternity. But they need to remember that while we're in time, we're called out of darkness to be a light to the world around us. So we can't just abandon the people that are lost around us, and we can't fail to function in daily life because we try to say we're so spiritual. So here is this tension. And in 1 Peter, he's going to give us some advice. I will not get there, there tonight. Okay? But he's going to give them some advice about how to live. How to, how to live in a home. How to live in a culture that is a Roman civilization, right? The Roman Empire. He's going to tell them how to work through relationships... But he's starting off in this book to remind them that you're pilgrims and strangers. Living in time, but for eternity. We're on this earth, but our hearts are calibrated to heaven. So, there's this clear message in in, uh, 1 Peter that we should not expect to be super comfortable here. And that we should not expect to be accepted here. If you are, good. If you're respected by people here for being a moral, godly person, wonderful. But you also may be persecuted for being that same person. And enjoy when people respect you and endure when they persecute you. And don't give up on your faith. Don't feel like God has abandoned you Peter will say I'm getting ahead of myself but he tells them think it not strange concerning your fiery trial which is a trial that's in this book it's in my notes in a while but probably next week we'll see. You're here but you may not be accepted here for these Christians you think about this Christianity is over 2,000 years old but for them it was just 20 years old, 30 years old. People, people didn't know what this is. They might have understood something about Judaism from synagogues and Jews who were dispersed there. But if you were a Christian, whether you were a Jewish Christian or a Gentile convert to Christianity, this was something brand new. No one understood this, that, that, that someone would die for your sins that a person that died would be raised from the dead? What kind of a a message is this that these people are preaching that he was died, buried, rose again on the third day, that he was a substitute for your sins? I mean, you think about what they said in their culture that was a foreign language to everyone. So if they were not understood then, you know, we're not always going to be understood now. In this book, 1 Peter wants them to know that Christians all over the world, they're suffering. These dispersed Christians are suffering. And they want to understand why they're suffering. They want someone to try to make sense out of their suffering. They want to know how to deal with their suffering. And then they need to know how to live. Because some of them, Peter says you're newborn babes. Some of them are brand new Christians. And they need to know how to navigate the culture. They need to know how to Let the word of God become part of them so that they can stand against the devil in their lives. And then they need to understand that their suffering is not in vain and that current suffering leads to future glory as we live out Jesus Christ in our life. So in this book, much of this book is written about suffering that Christians will endure. And I'm going to save that because I can't really get into it uh, without getting into it. But let me just say a few things, and I'll probably review at this point, Lord willing, next Wednesday night. But in this, in this book, the Apostle Peter writes a lot about persecution. But, and at the end of the book, he'll say that it's written from Babylon, which is probably a metaphorical referral to Rome. So you can read this and study it, and you can Google it. But Peter is probably writing from Rome, which would be like a spiritual Babylon to them, a place that is pagan, that represents everything that is against God. And some scholars believe that that Peter wrote this letter just before Nero's really violent persecution against Christians. And as he wrote... Of course, he had not yet been arrested. Jesus had prophesied that Simon Peter would be a martyr, that he would be crucified like the Lord. History says perhaps crucified upside down, that he was not you know, worthy to die like his Lord. But, but Jesus prophesied the death of Peter when he said they'll take you where you don't want to go. And, and this pro, he prophesied concerning the death that he would die. So here is the apostle Peter. He is writing to people who are in circumstances much like he will soon face when he is arrested, when he dies for the name of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to them, but he's really living out his own experience. That you're living in this world with a lot of uncertainty. But we have a great hope and we need to always remember that we are here as travelers, as pilgrims, as strangers. So I want you to think about this. How deep are your roots in this world? Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? He was a really good guy. And Jesus asked him about the second table of the law, everything that had to do with relationships. And he checked every box. And he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. And Jesus asked him to do something that he doesn't ask everyone to do. He said, all right, if you really love me, then I want you to sell everything you have, I want you to give it to the poor, and I want you to come follow me. Now why did Jesus ask him to do that? He doesn't ask everyone to do that. But he knew for that rich young ruler, for that man, that had become his God. Jesus didn't ask him if he had had any other gods before him. He didn't ask him anything about the first four commandments because they all had to do with your vertical relationship with God. So he was good horizontally with other people. But when it came to his relationship with God, he was woefully lacking because money was his God. And the Bible said he went away sorrowfully. He was grieved because he had great riches. He could not walk away from his money. The Bible tells us to warn them that would be rich and that we know that, that the affairs of this life can, can entangle themselves around you and that people who even get started can have thorns grow up. Jesus talked about that soil, that, that seed that was sown among thorns. There's a lot of things that can happen to well-meaning good people if we don't continue to keep our perspective right that we are living in time, but we are living for eternity. If you're able, please stand and if you have a few moments, I'd like to invite you to come to the altar. And I want us to pray. Because it doesn't matter who you are or how long you've lived for God. It doesn't matter if you're poor or rich. The writings of the Apostle Peter to those of us who are sojourners in this world. I have a tremendous amount of application. And I want you to know that you are God's chosen, God's elect. And because you have a great hope, it is important that we see ourselves as just passing through, living in time, but for eternity.